Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome along listeners, Dr. Sam Williams here and today I've got a real treat for you as I welcome along AMU consultants Dr. Amy Burbridge and Dr. Ben Lovell from the fantastic Home of Medicine podcast. I absolutely love the Home of Medicine podcast and would heartily recommend it. I'll put a link to it down in the show notes so have a listen to Amy and Ben doing what they do best. This episode though we talk about everything SDEC, same day emergency care, including what it means to them. And I've also asked them for their top three presentations that you absolutely have to be confident in managing in the SDEC, as well as their trickiest things to manage in the SDEC. So have a listen out for that. But now onto the buy me a hero, <laughs> buy me a coffee heroes this week. Thank you to Will Marshall, who's been listening before his first attempt. Good luck for that, Will. Thank you to Dara for your donation after passing your exam first time. But this show's dedication has to go to Clom who passed his Irish MRCP exam and donated a simply ridiculously generous sum. So Clom, consider this one solely dedicated to you. As I said earlier, I really do recommend the Home of Medicine podcast. You can find it pretty much on any uh, of the usual podcasting platforms. And I hope you really enjoy it. And if this is a signpost to it, I'm sure you'll get something really valuable out of it. So I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. And today on the show, we have double trouble for you in the form of two fantastic consultant guests. And it's a real treat for all of you lovely listeners today. This terrific twosome, both consultants in acute and general medicine, can more often be found on the Home of Medicine podcast, talking through interesting or challenging cases in acute and internal medicine, as well as tackling difficult subjects, including cognitive bias, human factors, and reflection after events. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Amy Burbridge, and welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Ben Lovell. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, same here as well, Sam. It's an absolute pleasure to be back. Thank you very much for inviting us. Well, as a, I'm going to say, a peer and a fan myself of Home of Medicine, it's a delight to 
have both of you on the Pre-Paces podcast today. And so the focus of this episode today, we're going to be talking about same-day emergency care or SDEC, which is something which anyone working on the medical take or particularly the medical reg may be implicated in becoming part of. You may be receiving phone calls from SDEC. You may be requested to review patients in SDEC with a view to discharging them home to prevent an unnecessary hospital admission. And so hopefully we're going to cover some valuable ground for our listeners today, helping them tackle this cohort of patients that can sometimes feel quite intimidating when you're the one holding the bleep and expected to uh, make a discharge decision for them. So hopefully we've got some good ground to cover today. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation on same-day emergency care. So, uh, Amy, why don't we start with you? Um, For our listeners who may be not uh, as au fait with this location of patient care or this method of delivering patient care, what do you understand by same-day emergency care and what does it mean for you as uh, an acute medical consultant? So same-day emergency care can actually be different in different places where you work. That's definitely something that I've realised having worked in two different same-day emergency care units this year. However, the premise of same-day emergency care is really is emergency care that happens in the same day. So it's usually co-located either within the emergency department or within the acute medical unit, depending again on your individual hospital. For example, our same-day emergency care unit is located in our acute medical village, where we have short stay, we have frailty, we have medical decisions unit, and then we have our same-day emergency care. And it's basically ran by a consultant, usually of the day, um, often me. I do spend a lot of time in SDEC. I really enjoy working in SDEC. I think when it's done well, it can be incredibly rewarding and also beneficial to the patient. Patients are chosen for same-day emergency care. They can either be chosen by um, the ED department, the GP, 111, may refer into the service itself. And these are patients who, for example, may have chest pain, it doesn't appear to be a acute coronary syndrome. It may be something like um, costochondritis or a pulmonary embolism, and we would see them. We may be able to investigate and treat and discharge on the same day. To be honest, we pretty much see anything and everything. We often have a criteria, quite a basic criteria, in that their new score cannot be higher than four. So that's their national emergency warning score. So, for example, if they are scoring any higher than four or above, they're going to be too unwell to be in the um, same day emergency care unit. That doesn't mean that that changes when they're in SDEC. Sometimes they become more unwell, and that sometimes happens. We also, it used to be called ambulatory care, you know, not so long ago. And there used to be a rule that people had to be ambulatory, but again, that isn't a rule now. You know, we will happily see and treat anything and everything, to be honest, unless they are acutely unwell and would need an A&E bed or would need an acute medical unit bed. Um, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's fine. I wonder if Ben can come in and just uh, yeah. if, if he's got anything to add, particularly on your experience of SDEC and what SDEC means to you as as an acute medical consultant. Amy, do you consider SDEC and ambulatory care to be interchangeable? Or ambulatory care died out as a phrase because it was because not everyone walked? Or... Yeah, it's quite... I think ambulatory... When I first started as an acute physician... Um, 2018, ambulatory emergency care, AEC, was the thing. That was the place to go. And all the mm. signage in our hospital still says AEC. 
Um, and the implication of that was that people had to be ambulatory. So a lot of patients were not referred to that unit because they were not ambulatory. There are subtle differences when you look at the um, ARCHEM and the SAM definitions of actually what SDEC is, but they are subtle and each hospital that will be probably slightly different. Um, we now call ours SDEC, but to be honest, we do the same job as we did in ambulatory care. Okay, we call ours SDEC, but there is a cultural legacy and everyone in conversation calls it AmbiCare. Um, and I just wondered whether there was a, a nuance that I was missing. I, I do as well. Who's in AmbiCare today? What are you doing? Are you coming to AmbiCare? That sort of thing. Mm. Um, I remember a time before ambulatory care when I was a med reg, when in acute medicine, there were only two time frames: right here, right now in a bed in hospital or in six months in an outpatient clinic. And I remember being very frustrated because those two rigid timeframes didn't work for a lot of the patients I was seeing on the take who need to be seen maybe in a week or two weeks, but then probably that was it. And what did we used to do with those patients? I'll tell you what we used to do. We used to discharge them and say, please see your GP in one week for X, Y, Z. And I think everyone listening knows those days are gone, rightly so. Um, I think those phrases alone give a lot of GPs paroxysms of pain because they were simply placing a demand on them they cannot meet. And I believe that we ought to finish off our patient journeys ourselves if we start them in, uh, in acute medicine. So I remember when ambulatory Estec was um, first created. And for me, the revelation was it was an amazing place for follow up for patients who'd made their way to acute medicine, probably via the take. And then I needed to see them again to check a user knees or 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 their INR because I've just loaded them on warfarin remember warfarin so you know stuff like that and I, they need to be quite quite quickly um asthma checkers I got a feeling nice still wants you to be seen within 48 hours of discharge with an asthma exacerbation or something and I, I remember finding this absolutely amazing place for I suppose what we now call safety netting but we didn't call it that in those days so that to me was a really, really big change. And then, of course, ESTEC is not a follow-up. That's a, For me, at least, that's a minority of the work we do. The majority of the work we do is now new presentations. And it's been very interesting watching the evolution of the service, um, from my point of view, move from checking that patients we'd seen on the take were okay after we sent them home to actually seeing de novo patients who'd either made their way to us from a GP or from the A&E department. And whenever I do induction for new uh, trainee doctors now, and I say, and here is ESTEC, uh, I usually describe it as this is the take, but sitting down. Nice. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's the medical take still. It is a clinic. And I have thoughts about how it's framed as a clinic, especially for internal medicine trainees. But um, most of what we do now is, is the take, but with, with the heat, heat turned down a little bit. And then in order to establish an identity, uh, ESTEC has nationally said, well, I know people are trying to, they're finding it hard to judge who goes on the take and who goes to ESTEC. And then we've created many sort of typical presentations, as you mentioned, the low risk chest pain, some of them which are, are great, some of them not such a fan of. And I wonder if it's a shared experience that a lot of ESTECs are primarily DVT diagnostic services. A couple of the places I worked in, that has been a, um, the brunt of the workload there. But you still see some really interesting medicine. And it's nice to have a place where you're not on the four-hour clock in A&E, but you're not pushing a patient to an outpatient clinic in four or six months' time. You're actually doing something yourself, creating a diagnosis and a management plan, then hopefully getting that patient in their own bed tonight nice and safely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 
what Amy said is really important as well, that the experience will differ depending on your exact trust, where your SDEC is, where it's located and who staffs it. And we'll go a bit more into that later in the record. One thing which I found which is sort of interesting is that in the NHS long-term plan, or the suggested aim should be that every hospital that has a 24-hour emergency department should provide an SDEC service for at least 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And at least the last couple of trusts I've worked in, that has been the case, and we have been able to provide that. And I wonder across the country how many how many hospitals that have a 24-hour ED are managing to provide that. And the other benefit which I think this does give to patients, especially the ones who've been discharged relatively recently, or, in, or indeed the de novo patients, are ones that require practical procedures which couldn't be done in uh, a GP surgery, whether or not that's a matter of uh, proficiency or having the, the right kit there. But things such as lumbar punctures or uh, diagnostic or therapeutic plural procedures. And the other thing is, is that this isn't just often a place for medical patients, is that often we have surgical patients through there as well. I don't know if that's the same way you guys work, but patients who might benefit from wound reviews or drain removals or uh, dressing reviews or further closure of their wounds or something, that can still be a benefit to surgical patients. So uh, I guess the overwhelming thing is that it's providing a, a service to patients who would otherwise, like Ben alluded to, you've, you're either being admitted right there right now, or you're going to be seen in two or three months time in a clinic, which previously didn't exist. And I was just saying to Ben before the record, Amy, that my memories of being a foundation doctor was that it almost didn't exist in the hospital in back when I graduated in 2015 and we were talking about how the 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 growth of SDEC obviously with the NHS long-term plan as well but it seems to have just ballooned in the last three or four years and trusts are really realizing the value of SDEC in managing these patients. Well it's, it's almost a specialty now it's an offshoot um, of, of acute we have a the, um Professor Lasterson Dan Lasterson is an acute medic who is, was the country's first professor in ambulatory medicine so it is certainly a subspecialty within acute medicine, but uh, it, I mean, considering it didn't exist when I was a trainee, that's an extraordinary journey that ambulatory care, same-day emergency care has been on. And I think the fascinating thing for me about it is that like acute medicine, it is a specialty about risk and how you manage risk. Um, an interesting insight, an observation from me was that when ambulatory care first gets introduced to a trust and um, having that safety net service it can quickly become overloaded in a sense that oh thank goodness all our discharges from the take which might feel a bit risky bring them back to ambulatory care tomorrow or the day after to check their better to check their trajectory and I've seen that completely saturate and overwhelm an SDEC service before, so much so they've had to re-outline their rules and their criteria saying we cannot accept every discharge from the acute medicine service and from the hospital. But a lot of what people do in ambulatory care is, I think, more so than the take is riskology, which is a funny, um, funny thing to wade through. And I don't know how it is taught. I feel that myself as a medical registrar, I learned how to wade the, the treacherous waters of risk was by trial and observing other people do it to get a sense, to get a, a gut feeling about what, what is a, a safe thing to do? What is a, a discharge? How can you, we just copper plate this charge a bit so it doesn't uh, turn into a dangerous one? But it's something that we talk about, Amy, on our podcast, podcast is, is how, how you teach risk management and risk balance. And I, I still haven't worked it out. 
Yeah, and I've, I've just jotted down a few reflections, actually, while you were talking. Number one is that Sam qualified in 2015, and I'd already been a doctor for 10 years. So that is that's very scary to me. Oh, oh God. Um, number two, we talked about um, STEC and how it's basically become a new specialty that has come to the fore, really, probably towards the end of COVID, sort of in the last two to three years. And it's almost grown too quickly. It's been, become a victim of its own success. And a lot of places don't have the right space to run a successful STEC. They don't have the right staff. And it's just not really embedded into the culture properly. And we still haven't got it right. We don't have the right referrals. We don't have the right pathways. And I sometimes think we're not seeing the right patients. When STEC is done brilliantly, it's perfect. So a perfect patient for me will be a gentleman I saw a few weeks ago. He was 65. He was a farmer. He came in with a right knee effusion. Um, he'd been seen in ED, sent down to STEC. I reviewed him. I looked at his knee. No real significant history of note, although we mentioned gout in the past. So I was able to take a history, examine him. I was able to aspirate his knee. I was able to send that aspiration off for MCNS and gram stain and also to look for crystals. I was able to rule out septic arthritis that afternoon. I was able to diagnose gout and treat appropriately. Um, and then subsequently, I followed him up when the crystals came back as shown uric acid. And that for me is a really nice flow of a patient who doesn't get admitted under the orthopods for septic arthritis, doesn't get admitted to a medical bed because nobody knows how to do the knee aspiration. And that was a really nice case. However, to do STEC well, it takes time. And I think the problem is often now, a lot of the A&E patients are being sent down to STEC. We often have 60 to 70 a day now with one consultant and often you don't have the time. And I think to do STEC well, it takes time because it's all in that communication. Again, like Ben said, it's risk. And I find STEC probably one of the most exhausting places to work because I am making so many decisions throughout the day. The first question I always ask myself when I see a patient with chest pain, what is the most serious cause of chest pain this patient could possibly have? And am I happy that this isn't that? And how am I going to rule in or rule out that diagnosis? And I always think of three diagnoses that it could be always at the top of that list is what could kill this patient? Is this that aortic dissection, that is this, this, this aortic aneurysm that I cannot miss? And how do I ensure that I do that in STEC? I guess I have to work slightly different in STEC because I like to take a bit of time with patients. I can, you know, take that history examine. But actually, the numbers coming through STEC now precludes that and makes it very difficult. So I now have to reframe my thinking, and I'm not sure whether you agree with this, Ben. What is the acute medical problem this patient has today that I need to sort out? I can't sort out their hemoglobin of 110 that they've had for six years. I cannot sort out the essential hypertension that they haven't taken their tablets for for three years. So what is the one question, maybe two, maybe three, that I need to answer acutely today? And before, six months ago, a year ago, I would try and solve everything. But actually, I think time and the sheer number and the workload has changed that. And I do think STEC is a very evolutionary specialty and we are continuously changing. That resonates a lot with me. And I think that's something that people rotating trainees find a bit off-putting about ambulatory care because for the patient to be seated in front of a doctor, it, it's, it's a real opportunity. And sometimes they do want to bring up a lot of stuff 
that they have been sitting on for a while. Whilst I'm here, I also have this. And I think it takes a certain level of experience to be able to say, I'm just going to stop you there. This is the same day emergency clinic. And unfortunately, we're only looking at this emergency issue today because you have to be confident enough to say it. But you have to be certain enough to know that you're not about to poo-poo. Actually, a really important thing they're going to bring to the conversation that's relevant to the emergency uh, presentation as well. And I, I, I don't think we ever we ever teach. I remember when I go back to medical school, I was taught how to take a history. I was taught you had to explode every detail, so to speak. Like, tell me more about this. Tell me more about this. And then as you get more senior on the take and in ambulatory care, we're talking more about minimizing. Like, okay, I don't need to know more about that. I don't need to know more about that. I want to focus on this one thing. And there's an art to doing that in a way that the patient doesn't feel like you are ignoring something important or they're being, you know, poo-pooed or fobbed off uh, about about something. Sometimes when I'm working in ambulatory care and I think, where is my IMT? They went to see that low-risk chest pain 50 minutes ago and I peek through the little door, you know, and they're still in there intently listening to this patient who's got a rapt audience and, and it is all coming out, everything. And I, I think, okay, how am I going to intervene here? Because I think they're, they're stuck and there is a sort of a theoretical uncertainty about whether they're in clinic or not. People who tend to come to my ambulatory care are IMTs who are heading towards, inverted commas, physicianly specialties, where they will be spending much of their time in a clinic, a a good proper secondary care clinic with expected clinic lists and all that sort of thing, where it's a different sort of flavour to what is take but sitting down, which is same day emergency care. I sometimes struggle with portioning off and, and limiting a consultation to focus on the one issue because time is so precious. Uh, and I've been doing it. I've been around the block a few times. So when you're new to to SDEC, uh, I, I appreciate that is often a sticking point for them. W- what can I ignore? What can I say not today? And what is important? If a patient's presenting to me information, which to the patient has equal importance. I guess maybe is this something that you can speak to, Sam, as, as someone who's uh, still in training? Well, I think it's it's very dependent on exactly where you work. And I think the next thing I was going to come on to, and just for the benefit of the listeners, there's a lot, there's lots of mutual nodding going on on the old uh, video conference. So I, th- I think it's very dependent on who actually staffs your SDEC as well. And that's one thing that I wanted to come on to because Amy, you mentioned that the consultant where you are leads the leads the unit or runs the unit. Ben, you've mentioned about having IMTs there. But where I've worked in the past, it's been a, a mixture of acute medics or those on the medical take. There's some GPs who do a portion of acute medicine within that environment. And then there's also the addition of uh, advanced practitioners who have come from a completely different background, such as paramedicine, who now are in an inpatient, you know, semi-inpatient specialty they're used as uh, paramedics to seeing undifferentiated patients and they're taking that into the hospital. So I wanted to ask each of you about your experience of, of who staffs the units where you are and adding in a little bit there is that the the benefit that the, the advanced practitioners have where I've worked in the past is that it's often been a very protocolized system and flow chart, you know, um, flow chart based where it's either i mean dvts and pe's are extremely common and once the uh, practitioners are confident in managing these patients they actually take a huge burden of um, patient flow off of the medical reg and others on the medical take by managing these patients in my experience extremely safely so if i can ask uh, amy if if we can ask you first about who actually staffs the uh, SDEC where you are you mentioned about the consultant leading it but what other members of the team are there when you're managing this uh, this unit 
So it can vary day by day, depending on staffing. I mean, I'm sure we are all experiencing significant um, sickness levels at the moment. Um, I think that's a reflection of how challenging it is to work in the NHS at the moment. We've had a lot of people leave, just general sort of retention and recruitment that you get sort of in um, an attrition rate of staff. But on a day-to-day basis, there will be a consultant in SDEC who does the eight till five shift and a consultant who does two till 10. So there's a little bit of crossover there. There will then be clinical fellows. So senior clinical fellows who will be registrar level. So there will either be a training grade um, doctor, a non-training grade doctor. Generally, majority of the time, we do not have trainees in our SDEC, except for our acute medical ST4s and above. We do have occasionally our IMT3s come through and our IMT1s and 2s. Um, but at the moment, we are very sort of clinical fellow heavy. Clinical practitioners, we have had quite a significant um, loss of clinical practitioners recently. Um, so very rarely oh, do we have any advanced care practitioners in our department. We have one nurse, if we're lucky. And that's it really, um, which I think again is a reflection of the growth in a service without the staff provision, funding provision and organisational provision from a bigger level, not talking about trust, I'm talking about bigger NHS level, to recognise that this needs money and this needs funding. So on an average day, We'll start the day with two doctors, two or three doctors, and throughout the day we do get more doctors join and, and you know, doctors go home and shift end. Weekends, again, different staffing, fewer staff, um, normally one clinical fellow and a consultant later on in the day. Interestingly, I was at another trust recently where I was for six months in their SDEC. Again, it was a very different model, a wonderful SDEC. They had between eight and ten nursing staff there um, per day. And they had uh, clinical practitioners and fewer doctors. So very different model. And their model was very much based on follow-up, much more the traditional ambulatory care, a lot of drain insertions, a lot of interventional radiology sort of follow-ups, that sort of stuff. So, so I think there, is, there are different models. And I think you have to have a model that suits your patient population and also your training population and, you know, where you work. Interesting to hear what you've got to say, Ben, because I saw you're shaking your head <laughs> when you were like, you have one nurse, what? <laughs> yeah, actually, some things are really similar. There's a consultant, we do a whole day shift there. We have a, a nurse consultant who set up the entire service, wrote the business case, recruited all the ACPs, and basically is the working brain of the department. And we have a, a core team of ACPs, advanced care practitioners, who only do ambulatory care, um, a lot of whom were... Uh, senior nurses within our hospital and when we opened ambulatory care that they they joined and they moved forward their careers and moved into an ACP role and they do form the backbone of the service in that they see a lot of what comes through our ambulatory care which is high frequency but low complexity or high frequency and also low training value for a doctor conditions. I don't think it's right or appropriate to put a um, a senior medical trainee in an SDEC unit if they're only going to see painful calves day in, day out, because they're going to saturate with that pretty quickly. And I think the ACPs have proven to be an excellent resource in seeing these types of high frequency patients. The other thing is that they have excellent organizational knowledge. 
um, if you need a, D, a Doppler for your for your leg, it's it's a case of, what? oh, I know the number off the top of my head. Let me call Jean downstairs on reception. Hi, Jean, can you squeeze one more in? Done. Yep, they're booked in. Send them straight down, which shaves off so much time from a rotating doctor saying, right, let me look at induction and work out who the right person up. All of these people to call us to get this Doppler. So that's really useful as well. Um, but we do have doctors there as well. We, at, Like you, Amy, we have a, a clinical fellow, a, a, a registrar-grade doctor who does a lot of the work. We have an IMT3 down there. The IMT3s in our acute medicine unit, they rotate, they do a bit of take, they do a bit of AMU, and they do a bit of ambulatory care, and they move around just to get a really good breadth of acute medicine experience. And um, and we often have IMTs there as well. So I think one, one of my many roles as the consultant in ambulatory care is is putting the right person in front of the right patient to make sure everybody's needs are met. We see nowhere near your numbers. So listening to you, I I think you're working harder than me. <laughs> um, and it's as if you are the ultimate decision maker for 70 patients a day, I'd be a, I'd be a puddle on the floor. Well, that's the problem, Ben. I often am a puddle on the floor, which is, again, I think it's self-reflection on my part. I need to recognise that, which I do. But also, I think because we are so busy all of a sudden, like I don't know what's happened in the last few months, the numbers have just gone massive, but we haven't had the corresponding workforce, not necessarily doctors, but support staff. And one of the most important things that I've realised is the successful running of ESTEC is to have support staff there. Because I'll see a patient, I might, I know I've said this on the other podcast, I might take their bloods, I'm dipping their urine, you know, I'm taking them to the toilet, I'm making them tea. Um, You know, you're doing a bit of, you know everything and last my last Wednesday night Estec shift finished and I my job was to make everybody waiting in Estec waiting room tea and get them biscuits and sandwiches so the roles of Estec are multifactorial um but it is I think it is that support staff is so important for success yeah definitely and I think the I mean the Estec which I previously worked in was sounds certainly more well supported than than the one you're working in Amy because it was almost as if you were seeing someone following an ED referral because they would have had their bloods, they would have had a VBG, uh, an ECG if it was felt appropriate, and a set of OBS. And then, you, you know, they had their little polywallet of uh, paperwork in the trolley and then you you picked it up. So, I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more that the value of uh, support staff, nursing staff, HCA staff to set these patients up to be seen in an efficient fashion really gives value to the department. And it sounds as though, whilst, of course, it's an extremely noble and lovely thing of you to do to make cups of tea and take patients' biscuits, I my concern would be that's not the best use of your time as the consultant looking after 60 patients in a department to, to do that. And I'm not saying that's not a lovely thing to do because we all know you're lovely, but we don't need you to make tea for us to know that. You know what? To be honest, at eight o'clock after 12 hours in Estec, the only thing I was good for was making tea. So I thought, actually, I'm going to be useful. I can make tea. And I felt quite proud of my ability to make it. It sounds as though you needed one yourself at that point. I'm not saying it's not all bad. I mean, you know, I I do work in a great unit with great staff. Um, I just think the implosion of Estec hasn't been matched with the staffing levels.
we we've talked a lot about the store of uh, the the makeup of an S deck and what would make a successful S deck. But I wonder if we can steer gently towards making something applicable for our pre paces podcast audience in terms of what skills are they going to be able to use when they're deployed or they're asked to see a patient on the on the same day emergency care unit they're taken maybe away from a, a, a relative area of comfort, such as the acute medical unit or the emergency department. And so thinking of the IMT3, who's now the new medical reg on call, or the ST4, who's just started being the, the sole bleep bearer of the medical reg. And I know this is an extremely broad uh, remit, and it will massively depend on the exact presentation. But Ben, I wonder if you can take the first stab at this. So rules of thumb to decide if someone requires admission versus a serial SDEC attendant, so a f- almost a mini follow-up in the same department, or do you just discharge this patient entirely? I wonder if you can speak to that if if possible. Well, we try to formalise this actually in, in our criteria for SDEC, and we say we try to have an SDEC first um, sort of view about referrals to acute medicine is could they could they go to ambulatory care first sometimes or clearly of course they, they can't they're sick as a dog but sometimes that we try and use that as a prompt if someone's got a new score as amy said ours is also four some someone's got a new score of four or below and does not require hospital specific treatments by which i mean oxygen or something going into a vein could they go to estec instead and spend the night in their own bed but be seen by us and I think that's pretty good as, as a general as a general rule. There are grey areas, and we've talked about this before on, our, on the Home of Medicine podcast, people who don't need oxygen or IV fluids or drugs or anything, but why did I still admit them? And we've discussed this quite a few times and sort of the little red flags, but the pink flags that maybe thought, they, they just sit, just bring them in, just bring them in and we'll, we'll see. But yeah, if you're thinking you're not giving something they can only have in a hospital bed, then SDEC is a good, it could be a good first option. And actually, I believe there was guidance saying that a good SDEC should have a few admissions coming through it on a daily basis to show that you're not too risk averse and you're actually um, offloading from, from the take somewhat. That would be my, my initial advice. That's very, very broad brushstrokes. Any further thoughts on that, Amy, for us? I guess there's the IMT3 who's going to come and work in SDEC. I think that that is working in estate is a perfect time to really hone your clinical reasoning skills and to really focus on taking that history. I always bang on about history and examination being the key thing, you know, and, you know, not doing too many investigations. Um, and I think ESTEC is where you can do this because the often the patients have been, already been selected for you, either through the referral pathways or they've been triaged by ED or the GP or 111. So they've already been recognised in a way of a low acuity. Occasionally, patients sneak through the net where their news is actually higher or they are sick. And then we use our guest out. We use our clinical acumen to say, that person looks really sick. However, if you've got a general SDEC shift, IMT3 is there, you pick up a patient and it could be chest pain, it could be headache, huge numbers of headache we see. I think it's really great time now for the IMT3 to really hone history taking skills. So I would expect them to go and really focus on that headache, thinking about the acute causes, you know, is it that subarachnoid? Is it that central venous sinus thrombosis? Is it a malignancy? Or is it migraine? Is it tension headache? Is it cluster headache? And it's about being able to really hone those 
history taking skills within that consultation and do an appropriate examination all the while in the back of your head thinking I am in an acute setting I need to make sure this patient is not going to die and that it's not going to be a serious cause of a headache so one thing that I know gets all trainees is subarachnoid hemorrhages and headaches and how we investigate and how we manage and I've talked about this many times um, to LP or not to LP but I really think it's those sort of skills that we can hone because you may see 10 people with headaches that day which you don't want to see 10 people with headaches every single time you're an aesthetic but actually it's quite good to see two or three headaches in a day because they present differently they may have the same type of headache but they present differently, they sound differently, different location. And I think it's a really great time to really focus on getting the basics right. And then forming your hypothesis, forming your differential diagnosis. I always think in threes, three differential diagnoses, thinking of what investigations are going to help, what's going to help confirm or refute those diagnoses. You know, somewhere in there might be a CT head. But that's not going to be my first line unless I really am thinking this is an acute headache. And I think that's a really good way to start to think about that, but also to have those discussions with the consultant who's on that day and really talk through your clinical decision making with them um, and do it together. Because decision making is a team sport, which can be a problem in SDEC when you're in a clinic room, because sometimes that door's closed and you feel a bit more like working in on your own. And I, I always make sure I go out and try and talk to as many people as I can. Get those CBDs, get those ACATs done. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so one of the things which I've given you a bit of advanced warning on was thinking of three of the most common things which come through the, the SDEC, which our listeners as junior medical regis or IMT trainees will have to know about. Amy, you've already mentioned headaches as one, but the other thing which I was going to say is that I'm vetoing VTEs, DVTs and PEs because that's just so common. And hopefully the audiences are very, uh, are very au fait with managing that as it is. So um, Ben, I don't, know what, uh, I don't know what ideas you had, but what do you think are three of the most common things that our listeners just 100% need to ha have their history taking and investigation strategies on point for managing in an SDEC environment? Amy's pinched one of mine. I was going to say headaches. Oh. Um, because it is a really common thing to come through. Getting your own headache history, I think, is a rite of passage for anyone who wants to work in acute and general medicine. And I think that takes a bit of trial and error. What is your headache history? What is your headache examination? Well, how do you do it? And how do you get slick at it? I think that's something really, it's really good. Developing training if you want to be uh, uh, in, working in, in sort of the urgent care area of things. So headaches, one, when to scan, when not to scan, how to fish out the relevant parts of the histories. Um, and I think that's quite good because I think that's a good example of a patient who, if aesthetic and malaria care didn't exist, they would have been admitted. And I think that's fantastic if you can say, if we weren't here, that patient would be in one of those beds now. A second one, hypertension. Please do not admit them on the take, um, especially asymptomatic incidental hypertension. Aesthetic, I find, is a great place to park them, observe them. Give them one of Amy's cups of tea and see if their systolic comes down with it after they've you know, moved out of the stressful area of ED. And if you need to dip their urine or do your, your blood test, your knees or whatever you want, if you want to rule out malignant hypertension, again, that's a win. You can get them home the same day. And again, if STEC didn't exist, they'd be sitting in a bed and they'd be admitted. So that's another really, really big win. And it's been really interesting to watch how in acute medicine, but everywhere we've been changing how we manage hypertension, 
when I was a much more junior trainee, if anyone came with a systolic more than 80, GTN infusion for you. I don't care what else you've got going on, what your symptoms are or aren't. Whereas now we know actually, just leave them alone. Leave them alone. It, it'll come down. It will regress to the mean. Don't intensify their blood pressure medications in a luminesthetic or an ED waiting room. They'll go home, watch the TV, drop their systolic to 90 and fall over. So I think hypertension is the one. And my third one, it'll be something procedurally. Um, I think a lot of aesthetics I've worked in have incorporated a kind of a plural clinic. And if they haven't, it's still a good place for doing a plural aspiration, uh, therapeutic or diagnostic um, aspiration. Again, if we didn't exist, they would have been admitted on the take. That's another win. Um, and it's, an, it's a procedure that IMT stage one and stage two, and I think ACCS and other training pathways have to, have to get this done. And I think it's much kinder for the patient and for the hospital at large to do this in an aesthetic clinic. If someone's got a uh, pleural effusion, but they're not hypoxic and hemodynamically stable, park them in a bed seems a bit much, right? If we can just send them to an aesthetic who's got the capability and the bandwidth to do some kind of aspiration. That's my three. Absolutely love those three. And I have to... I have to echo your sentiment with the plural effusion because the the last trust I worked in just had, and this is where the value comes from knowing the ins and outs of the workings of your hospital is that the previous trust I worked in, the plural clinic was always on the same day. And so everyone would say, okay, we'll just come in on Thursday and, and whoever was running the plural clinic that day would sort it for you. So yeah, three great examples there, headaches and hypertension and plural stuff. Absolutely love that. We'll hand over to Amy for your three most common things which uh, come through ESTEC. So, um, Ben, you stole one of mine. So I you stole headache. So headache, hypertension. Um, is it a hypertensive urgency? Is it a hypertensive emergency? No. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the patient to get a diary. I'm going to tell them to buy a portable blood pressure monitor take their blood pressure twice a day, record their blood pressure in their diary, seven to 14 days, and then go and revisit their general practitioner. Because unless I have that ambulatory blood pressure monitor, I am not going to start any management for blood pressure in SDEC. It is not appropriate. And we often get patients who may have called 111, been to see their GP, and they come in with a slightly high blood pressure, but actually, it goes even higher because they're sitting in an incredibly busy ED, an incredibly busy SDEC. And when I see them, I do always do the blood pressure in both arms just to make sure that there's not a massive difference and I'm not missing that aneurysm. However, if there isn't, I will often, if I'm happy it's not urgency or emergency, so they don't have papilledema, acute kidney injury, they're not in heart failure, they don't have posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, which I've never seen in SDEC. I am happy to send them home with safety netting and get them to buy that blood pressure monitor. And often we don't see these patients again and they will be managed beautifully in their GP surgery with the appropriate treatment. Now, controversial this one might be, but I reckon I get two to three referrals per day of this one particular condition. It begins with a P. Any ideas? Pneumothorax? No. Pneumonia? No. It's, it's an actual per. It's an actual per. So it often gets referred from eye clinic. Oh, papilledema? Papilledema. I reckon we get two to three referrals per day from eye clinic with papilledema. 
picked up by the ophthalmologists and they refer to medical aesthetic for papilledema workup. Now, I am still yet to decide and figure out what a papilledema workup is. Now, they'll often get referred to our neurology team who don't have that set up, so they come through to ESTEC. These patients are very, very well. They may have had papilledema for six months, they may have had it for six years, we don't know, but they're often sent to us and they may have benign intracranial hypertension is a possibility, and they come through to us to rule out a central venous sinus thrombosis. And a brain tumor, I guess, as well, and a space-occupying lesion as well. And space-occupying lesion, yeah. And I'm not sure I am well enough trained or, to be honest, the right person to do this. Again, that's why I think this might be slightly controversial, because I think this is picked up in clinic by a doctor. I've had this discussion many times with different people, and we haven't really come to a consensus. We, we are working on a guideline, is if we do have somebody with papilledema, should the doctor who picks up on that papilledema then request that CT to identify whether that space-occupying lesion is there, whether that thrombosis is there, should they go to neurology, or should they come to the take? And when they come through to us, again, you assess them and you, re you identify that they are not acutely unwell, but they do have papilledema, which can obviously be a devastating condition. But on assessment, you make the decision that actually they're very well. Who then does that LP to look for the opening pressure in a very busy SDEC department? Again, I'm not, I'm not sure. It's something that we do see a lot of to be honest, and I know I'm covering ESTEC tomorrow, um, that I'll see probably one or two people um, and with this. And it's something that I think anybody who comes to work in ESTEC needs to know what are the serious causes of papilledema? What do we need to look for? How to use an ophthalmoscope? Where do you find an ophthalmoscope? I've bought my own ophthalmoscope because I was so fed up of never having an ophthalmoscope. So it's things like that. You know, I think papilledema, which does come up in paces, so I think that's something that we need to look at a little bit. Yeah, that's so interesting, Amy, because I think from all the time I've worked in an SDEC, I've, I think I've probably seen a handful of patients referred from the ophthalmologists. And and the ones that I have seen have been things such as uh, the ones that they've sent through have been retinal artery occlusion in a young person in their 20s was one and probably a handful. So I'm very surprised to hear, and I wonder if that's a bit of geographical nuance that now the ophthalmologists know that they can get them into your department to be seen, that maybe they're just taking the initiative to ensure that they're seen and safety netted from an ophthal ophthalmology perspective that you're going to just see the patient. But I know that's so interesting to, to hear that how frequently you see these patients. Yeah. And it's, Again, there's always bias, isn't there? And, you know, but every day we do see papilledema. And I don't know who the best person to see these patients is, but I'm not convinced it's me. Um, and I think there's some work that we need to do on that. My view is coming from a, from a different experience, different context. We get a handful a year. So I'm very happy to, to embrace them under the umbrella of, of acute medicine, work them up in estec. Yes, doing a lumbar puncture in estec is a real-time vacuum. Finding the kit, that's our number one. Finding the room is our number two. Doing the LP is our number three. And then looking after the patient lying down for a bit is our number four. Four hours without one clinician on the shop floor in Estec. You'll find me gibbering in a wreck uh, in, in hiding in a cupboard somewhere. So, uh, but because it's so, we don't get it so much. We have a big eye hospital down the road as well, which is weird. But they send them to us saying someone's come in. And my view is, if they've seen an ophthalmologist or, or what have you, or, or even a high street um, optician, 
and they've noticed papilledema, they've made that appointment. They've they've created that encounter because they've got a new symptom. So I think it would be, I wouldn't feel confident saying you might have had this for years. Go into the outpatient um, time time frame because my question is, well, why did you seek a? Why did you go to eye casualty today? Why did you go to your optician today? Well, I just noticed my vision become blurry. To me, that implies they've been whatever the time frame was. They've reached a critical juncture where their sight may become threatened. So, with you know, we might harumph and and, and go, oh, gosh, this is going to take a while. But we will do the CT venogram plus or minus the the LP in SDEG. Another reason why you need, I think, trainees in an SDEG, because if I ask my ACPs to go in an LP, they'll tell me where I can put that uh, request because it's totally out with their, their skill set. So that's my view based on my my experience. If I was getting two or three a day, I would not I would be very hard in saying we do not have the capacity in this SDEG to be doing two or three lumbar punctures a day with papilledema an alternative pathway must be created on the sharp side of ASAP because we cannot be we cannot work up we can't be an IIH diagnostic pathway here unless you want to give me a bunch more doctors rooms and resources and you know I've never thought about it from that angle is you know I always say we can't do an LP in SDEC because of staffing but actually you're absolutely right SDEC is same day emergency care and that, you know we are trolleys a few clinic rooms if we do the LP, it takes a lot of time and absolutely it takes up a bed space. And if you've got 50 people waiting, is it the right place for that procedure to be done as well? It's an interesting one. I think it's it's a watch this space sort of work in progress one. And I'm just going to mention something else that we do see a lot of. Um, and I think that all IMT3s or any trainee should be aware of is the cellulitis needing IV or oral antibiotics. Because we get huge numbers of bilateral cellulitis, which is, does uh, it, does it exist? Um, and also the infected spider bite, which is something mm. that we also see increasing large numbers. But definitely cellulitis, I think, is something that we need to get confident at saying whether they can go home with oral. And if they do need IV, hospital at home. Can we bring, you know, is there an alternative pathway? Because they're very well, they don't need to be in hospital. So can we deliver that in a different pathway? Absolutely. And I love all of those suggestions. And adding in cellulitis, I think, is really important as well. That's something we see very often. I'm going to add in my own, if I if I may. I'm going to add in, I'm going to add in, well, one is a definite, which is just something which is relatively common, but also straightforward to manage is the is the sort of semi-unwell pneumonia at home who's maybe been seen by uh, a, a nurse practitioner from a GP surgery who's not really happy with them. They occasionally get a bleep as the medical register say i'm just not happy with them they look really unwell and they might have um their new score might be less than four but they maybe do look a bit unwell and their crp may be 40 or 50 and maybe they've had one or two days of oral antibiotics and it's you're able to take bloods you're able to get a chest x-ray and it's managing the the risk around those sort of borderline cases sort sort of similar to a cellulitis because it can vary a lot depending on how it actually looks to you at that time but those ones i think is it, it probably is just a matter of experience i don't think there's i think it, it when it's clear it's clear when they have an oxygen requirement as ben said before you know it, the decisions made for you that you're going to admit them if they have an oxygen requirement but um, the ones that don't, but just look quite grotty and their bloods aren't normal, but they're also not uh, catastrophic. Those ones I find can be, 
quite difficult to to manage and that's a bit where ben's riskology um, comes into the fray as well so that's something which i think is really important for our imts and, and junior registers to get smart at managing and the other one which i was going to add in as well and there's a couple of caveats to this one as a cardiologist which is the asymptomatic and uh hemodynamically stable rapidly conducting atrial fibrillation that is found incidentally by another healthcare professional somewhere and they're found to have a heart rate of 140 or whether it, whether it's new uh, or pre-existing when it's just decided to go fast for another reason those patients who end up on SDEC with a fast heart rate for a reason which may or may not be explained and how do we manage these patients with a heart rate like that and I think those two which which do occasionally come in are ones which IMTs should should certainly try and just get get a bit sharper in in knowing how to manage but I'd welcome your comments on either of those I've got a feeling our cutoff is 110 beats a minute, <laughs> not 111 or 109, 110 um, is when we are um, guided to admit to a monitored bed for inpatient rate control. Um, having said that, if somebody walked in looking profoundly well to ESTEC with a heart rate of 140 with atrial fibrillation, I would try a bit of beta, a bit of bisoprolol there and then if they didn't mind sitting around in my waiting room or going off for a coffee and coming back for a, for a couple of hours and seeing if if I could get away with not admitting them. I don't know, maybe you think that's, maybe, is that, is that, am I being too brave or is that a bit too risky, Sam, in your opinion as a cardiologist? Well, no, I mean, uh, the one thing I'd say, I probably would, wouldn't send them off to have a coffee because that might just make their heart rate a bit worse. But, the, but I have managed patients who've come in initially with not newly found AF, but with known atrial fibrillation who have presented completely well but it's been found by someone taking their pulse somewhere or they felt their own pulse or maybe even a wearable you know something like a watch or or fitbit and they and they say oh you know my heart rate jumped up to 130 but i felt fine and uh, i rang my gp they said i need to come in and you end up seeing the patient they look completely well exactly as you said ben i've managed these patients before with a, a stat dose of beta blocker uh, providing they don't have any contraindications and their blood pressure is okay and get them to sit around for a couple of hours and if it drops after that then i think as long as they are asymptomatic and appropriately anticoagulated if applicable and hemodynamically stable i think i'm, I'm very happy sending them home with a maintenance dose of bisoprolol with with patients like that but what about if it was a new presentation i think if it's a new presentation that is slightly different because uh whilst people can have atrial fibrillation for additional reasons there's the added question of anticoagulation and often there's a question of do they have an element of heart failure with it are they symptomatic are they breathless or is it is it something like a pulmonary embolism which has provoked the atrial fibrillation in the first place so i think it it does it does matter and it is dependent a lot on the history that they give but the addition to that is we see plenty of people coming into cardiology clinic with newly found atrial fibrillation who are referred who don't have a CTPA or, or or an X-ray from their GP who end up making their way to our clinic as a first uh, as a first presentation. But they they may well have been anticoagulated and said, "Oh, please, can you help with symptoms or or with rhythm or rate control strategy?" So that's what I would say to that. Amy, any any thoughts on that? Um. I mean, again, AF is something that we do see quite a bit in our SDEC. Um, I guess it depends on, again, as, as Ben said, you know, are they he hemodynamically stable versus unstable? Obviously, you're not going to send somebody home if they're unstable. Um, if they are a AF, new AF, we don't know how long it is 
They're very, very well. They are running, to be honest, I'd probably be happy to discharge if they're running about 120. If, you know, if I've got them on the appropriate um, anticoagulation, I've got appropriate follow-up. I've had a discussion with maybe the cardiology registrar on call or the arrhythmia nurse. And I'm happy we've got a plan and the patient's happy with that and understands. So I think often with atrial fibrillation, it's about patient education. And I love, I always like giving them information um, from the patient.co.uk website that explains what AF is and, and you know, what it could increase the risk of and, and that sort of thing. So I'm, I do tend to discharge um, unless they are going really quick, you know, and I've given them some bisoprolol and they haven't slowed down and it just doesn't sit right. I can't, that's not very helpful though, is it, to people? If it, some of it, again, is gut instinct. Some of it is experience. But if a patient is well, blood pressure's fine, they're anticoagulated, they've had some education, they're safety netted, I'm happy to discharge. And I think those types of patients are also ones where it's, it probably would be fair enough to either you could could request their GP to see them urgently or you bring them back to SDEC at the end of the week and say, okay, well, we've yeah. increased your beta blocker to 3.75 on the Tuesday. Can we bring you back on Friday and see if you would tolerate five milligrams? But then again, I wonder if is, is that extending the remit of SDEC into the realm of primary care providers? And should that be the GP who's, who's monitoring that on a routine basis? I don't know. It's a difficult, uh, it's difficult to say you're stepping on GP's toes when GP's uh, already have so much at their feet. I mean, I, if I have diagnosed AF and I've started a treatment, I know there is a variety of opinions on this. I feel that it's my responsibility to follow that patient up if they are in this situation. So for example, I've got a gentleman coming in tomorrow morning in STEC at nine o'clock or something to, for a follow-up um, because I saw, saw them last week um, and I felt it wasn't appropriate for me to get the overworked GP to review them when it's a treatment and a diagnosis I've made and started. Again, I know that opinion does differ on that, even amongst clinicians I work with. Um, but I think for my risk-taking and the way that I practice, I think it's okay to follow up people in SDEC if you're not bringing every single patient obviously back that you sent home, which means it's unfeasible. But there are some people, the new AF, sometimes maybe the hypertension, I don't know, um, the gout, you know, the, the knee aspiration, or sometimes a phone call's okay. But it's, yeah, it's very dependent on, I think, you as an individual as well. And that's what IMTs and trainees will develop is their own style and their own practice. And often there isn't a right way, there's a wrong way. There's often a wrong way, but not necessarily a right way. And it's about finding what suits you and your risk taking and your risk averseness or whatever. Just a quick reminder, listeners, if you haven't heard Ben and Amy on the Home of Medicine already, just reiterating that I strongly recommend it. And you can listen to it by clicking on the link in the show notes or just searching for Home of Medicine wherever you get your podcasts. And who knows, you might even find that soon the tables are turned on me and I'll be a host turned guest. But anyway, let's get back into our chat with Amy and Ben. Just going back to your knee aspiration thing, because I thought of this when you mentioned that story about taking the knee aspiration for your patient and not everyone is trained in that. I'm not trained in that. And the next thing which I was going to ask each of you is, two of the most tricky things which come in via SDEC, which are more difficult to manage. And I think we've just unearthed one, which is maybe the management of asymptomatic fast atrial fibrillation. <laughs> but I think 
one of the things is which is tricky is for example that scenario if you don't have someone who's trained in knee aspiration is how are we going to rule out septic arthritis without that skill set because it's fantastic you have that skill to perform at the front door amy but not everyone does and i'm going to go first on this one which is the patients who require either usually an a rheumatology or a dermatology possibly an orthopedic surgical opinion but they're often uh, maybe more around in the aesthetic sort of arena but certainly a dermatology or a rheumatology thing i find very difficult mainly because they don't have a presence really in the aesthetic and it's something which they are they're not seen too much in the acute medical sphere we see patients with them but we don't often see patients presenting for the first time with symptoms of these conditions so the first thing that i was going to say is is in terms of tricky clinical scenarios are potential first presentations of either a dermatology rheumatological condition or a rheumatological condition ben what do you reckon of that rheumatological okay dermatological i completely get that because outside five maybe six acute presentations of skin disease i'm out i i i don't know i'm sad to say and i will need and i can't do a skin biopsy so i i I think you do need good links with some kind of dermatology service in any estate because an acute rash they do come up And sometimes the best I can say is, I don't know what this is, but it does not look right to me. And I don't think we can just say, I'm sure it'll clear up in a week. Uh, I remember someone teaching me a hundred years ago when I was a CMT that if you're prescribing Dermavate, call a dermatologist because you've got a skin disease which needs a diagnosis here. You know, you can't just slap the emollients on and hope it goes away. I do remember that sometimes. So, So yes, dermatology is a good one. I think for me, I was going to say two things which I find really, really tricky in estate. One's logistical and one's diagnostic. And the logistical one is, is lumps, neck lumps in particular, because arranging a biopsy from an estate department is often a logistical waking nightmare. You can say goodbye to that clinician for a good few hours whilst they ring around and try to co-organize the imaging, a biopsy, and then how are we going to follow up the histology And then how are we going to tell the patient histology, particularly if we're going to be breaking bad news? Do we bring them back in? We can't do it on the phone. What follow-up can we promise them? What can we realistically get them? What two-week pathway does it go down? And stuff like that. So I just find that really, really difficult to do. It's more, And that's more of a logistical thing. Um, The diagnostic thing is non-specific tiredness or fatigue. And I think in you know gps i'm sure have the same thing and what we can do in estate is listen empathize check their full blood count check their thyroid function and maybe if indicated do something clever with their cortisol levels but then we're done and say to the patient i'm sorry that you know you've got some real debilitating symptoms here we've reached the limits of what we can do in the same day emergency clinic which is where you are And unfortunately, I'm going to refer you back to your GP with a letter saying, although I do not know what the diagnosis is, we have ruled out several same day emergent diagnoses today. And sometimes that's the best that's the best we can do. I say to patients, I can't tell you what it is. I can tell you what it's not. Um, And it's not these three things here. And that's the really the, the, what, we, what we do here under, under this service. So I'm sorry, I know, I know it's very difficult not to know what's going on, but you, you'll have to pick this up again with your GP. Yeah, that sounds really tricky. And yeah, 
just thinking about it, I don't think I've seen many neck lumps in my time in SDEC, but I've definitely seen people tired all the time, not quite right, generally unwell, fatigued, and they come in for a full set of bloods and and a good look at from a secondary care physician is very difficult. It's very difficult. And I think that's the the point where we have to absolve ourselves of responsibility for their long-term chronic health conditions, because it is, as you say, same day emergency care. So Amy, what about you with your two most tricky clinical scenarios in the SDEC? So first of all, um, just to reflect on what Ben said about um, uncertainty. And I think that's really important when we're discussing SDEC is that I often use the phrase, I don't know what it is, but I know what it isn't. And, you know, sometimes there isn't a medical cause for the symptoms that you've been having, but I do know you're not having a heart attack or a stroke or, you know, and I think sometimes being open about uncertainty for patients is is a good thing. And patients do like to have a diagnosis or, you know, a reason for their symptoms. But sometimes we I don't want to give a make it up. So I'd rather say I don't know rather than tell them they have something that they don't have. I think the most challenging one that I see through SDEC is cancer of unknown primary. And these are um, individuals who present with maybe tiredness or weight loss or non-specific anemia. You, you take your history, think malignancy is a possibility, actually. You do an examination, there is a bit of weight loss. There may be a bit of a mass in the abdomen. You're not sure, they're a heavy smoker. You do that CT, thorax, abdomen, pelvis, and you pick up malignancy with metastases, unknown primary. It's really, really hard to know who to refer those patients to. Some hospitals will have a cancer of unknown primary pathway, which is what the nice long-term plan and the nice guidelines is. We should have that. However, it may not be up and running in some areas. And when I then try and refer sometimes, what's the primary? I don't have one. Well, until we have a primary I can't take them over. What's my role as an SDEC physician then? Because I feel like I'm bringing them back. I'm breaking bad news. I'm speaking to the family. That's not really the scope of an SDEC physician. But I'm doing the right thing for the patient. And that is a very challenging case. And I think it would be very worthwhile for everyone to read up on the cancer of unknown primary pathway, the guidelines, and see what your hospital does. It will differ. But I do find that incredibly challenging. And I've had some really difficult cases this year where we have found a cancer of unknown primary. And it's very difficult who takes ownership of that patient because I'm not the right person. You know, I might be okay to logistically organise tests, but again, even that from an estate clinic is maybe not the right thing. So that can be a challenge. And do you then send them back to the GP? Do you send them to an oncologist? I don't know. I've never really figured out the right answer. But what I do know is that you know, I will often bring the patient back and have that conversation, the breaking bad news, and we will make a plan that's patient-centred and is appropriate. So that's a big challenge for me. I guess the second one um, is the query TIA. Um, We get a lot of query TIAs. The TIA mimics, is it GCA? Is it TIA? Who do I refer to? Do I send them to TIA clinic? Do I get the rheumatologist to see them? Again, it all goes back to knowledge and it all goes back to history taking, as I always say, it's all in the history. And I think that's another key thing. But it's about sometimes it's an awareness of referral pathways from SDEC. It's a really, really important learning point. I think the lack of continuity in your first example is is really tough because you do often spend a long time with the patient saying, I've got some bad news. We can see cancer. and It's either coming from here or we think it's from here. We don't know where it's coming from. I'm going to refer you for tests 
but of course, what do they have? Nine million questions. Uh, and even when you say, I don't know yet, you need to see a specialist. Of course, they'll say, when do I see the specialist? I'm about to go into utter purgatory now. Every waking moment is an agony. When will I see them? And not having control over what happens next to their journey makes me very anxious. Yeah. I've had in my career enough referrals fall through the cracks, go missing administratively to make me very nervous. I'm sending someone home with a, with a primary burning away somewhere, metastasizing, and I can't, I can't promise them a timeline. And when you do spend a lot of time with them, often at the end, they'll say, so, so will I see you again? And you say, oh, you'll never see me again for the rest of your life. Uh, no, it was, just, it was just a one-off, sorry. And it feels very odd. And that, and that is the nature of acute medicine. We chose this especially because we like seeing patients, you know, at, at the front end of, their, their, of an emergency journey and then get better. We don't see them over and over and over again. But in that scenario, it does feel like something hasn't, is, is not adding up properly in, in that patient journey. I think my only advice is you have to give them a safety net, you have to give them a phone number. If you have not heard anything within seven working days from the specialist I'm about to refer you to, you can call us here. I just don't like cutting them loose back into the community without a robust plan because I just don't have 100% faith that things get picked up in a time-sensitive way. And I also know for a patient, it, it is hellish not knowing the next step on, on this new journey that they're on. Yeah, I think that's the challenge. It's you've broke really awful news to somebody that is completely life changing, and there's no, there's no way of sort of like following. Well, you could follow them up, but there's no. It's the uncertainty of the pathway. And you can't, and 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 you also can't expect to be the you know meaningful decision maker for their ongoing treatment for their malignancy. You can make the right people aware, but uh, in terms of further investigations whether or not they need chemotherapy or other what what comes next one of the questions they are likely to have and you you're just not the likely person to know what is best for them apart from making sure that they are on someone's radar who is connected to oncology There's only one last question which I had and that oh, we've probably just talked about some of them, the, the pitfalls that we may see when seeing these patients in SDEC. And I put in brackets because truthfully, I couldn't remember, but I know you guys are really hot on your cognitive biases. And it's the, the, the bias of seeing someone who is sat in front of you and looks completely well versus in a hospital bed with a gown on and some, maybe some nasal cannulae and your assessment of that person. So I, do, I don't know who wants to buzz in first on the name of that cognitive bias, but I'll take whoever's the fastest finger to just tell us about that and maybe some more pitfalls about managing aesthetic patients. Visceral bias? Does it have a name? Shall we name it? Pajama bias. Pajama bias. <laughs> what about if they've got a nightie on? A nightie bias. For a dressing gown. Yeah. I thought initially it was something like framing bias, but then I looked... Uh, I think it's more specific than that. You're talking about the phenomenon of someone lying down in, in hospital clothes compared to someone walking, sitting in a chair or walking in their own clothes. Part of it will be visceral. So, you know, that visceral bias of when you see somebody, what they look like is how you approach them. So if you're seeing them in bed versus seeing them in a clinic. We talked about this with the, the gentleman with the hydroponin and the mist MI, um, which I'm still dealing with. And, um, you know, that was definitely visceral bias. I was seeing him in his own clothes, looking very well. 
So maybe visceral bias with a potential, a little bit of pajama bias. I think it's it's right. It's a bias that works both ways because people on the take, once they get into the hospital bed and they get changed hospital clothes, they look really unwell. And then it's difficult for someone to say, well, could they go to could they go to Estec Ambulatory Care? I'm like, what? No, look at them. Look at them lying down in that bed. No, of course they can't. You can't get out. What's going on? They're not having any IV treatments or oxygen burn. These are your rules. I'm like, oh, but they look, they don't look good. So it is hard to to reframe that. Absolutely. And so the the answer is get them, don't see them before they get into the bed. But similarly, someone who's sitting in my estate, my ambulatory care waiting room in their own clothes, you know, even they're sort of crutching their head and groaning, I might say, oh, you're all right. And and it isn't until it isn't until I go, do you know what, I'm going to admit them. And they get into hospital bed and I go and look and I go, oh, my God, you look, thank God I admitted you, you look worse than I than I appreciated because the um, the mask of your own clothes and sitting in the waiting room sort of made you look a bit more robust than you actually are and now you're lying down in, in, in a bed I can see that yeah this was the right thing to do so I think I think it works both ways um, it makes people look sicker who, who presented you in a bed and look weller if they're presented to you in a, in a in a chair sometimes only like this last week I was on AMU and um, there was a patient saw the morning ward round lying down looking at 8 a.m who looks great at 8 a.m they haven't even brought down the coffees yet and I said okay we've got a few more things what you need to do and that afternoon, I saw her walking down to the shop with her husband. I was like, do you know what? Forget it. You can go home. You look fantastic. Not right. um, at a reasonable time of day. Uh, I, I've, I've reframed this, and I think we can manage this as an outpatient. So I think you've got to use a bit of imagination sometimes. It, it, it takes a bit of energy. It takes a few calories to derail you to another train of thought um, and thinking, how would this person look if they were not lying down in their night clothes? How would this patient look if they weren't, if they didn't just shuffle into the waiting, out of the waiting room in their own clothes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I have massively enjoyed this conversation. So I was going to give you each a chance to say any parting words you had for our pre-paces audience it, with anything to do with SDEC, of, an, of any uh, advice or last, last second tips that you might have for them if they choose to manage or if they find themselves in the position of managing SDEC patients. I would say that Estec is one opportunity and it's rare for you to be sitting down and working side by side with a consultant. Um, so make the most of that and ask a lot of questions. Get those assessments done. Um, you don't get the options to get all these CBDs and ACATs and OPCATs and all this stuff you've got to do in many other places because you don't have within the internal medicine framework specifically so much one-on-one -on -one time with a consultant where you can really dig into their decision making and the patient that you've seen. You can present it and get immediate feedback in action. Um, which is actually useful rather than a ticket completed two weeks down the line. So I would say make the most of the, of being seated next to the uh, senior decision maker and, and exploring what that's like. And I think that's a useful way to progress your own professional development and working out what kind of senior you you would like to be and you're going to be. Uh, from my perspective, embrace ESTEC for the brilliance that it is. And really, when you've got a shift in there, instead of thinking, oh, God, this is going to be really tough, just go into it with your eyes open, enthusiasm, a big coffee, and you know, just appreciate that it's going to be tough, but you're going to see some great cases, you're going to see a wide variety of patients, you're going to learn a lot, and always, always take that history. Don't look at the, the bloods that somebody's given you before you've seen the patient and went, oh, they're all normal, it's not going to be anything. Have a chat to the patient, go back to basics. Love it. Absolutely love it. Couldn't agree with you more on that one, Amy.
So I think that just leaves us to say a huge thank you to Dr. Amy Burbridge, Dr. Ben Lovell, both acute medical consultants here in the UK. Thank you both so much for giving up some time to chat to the Prepaces audience today. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. So listeners, that is just about all the time we've got for this week's show. Please do like, comment and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. We always love to hear from you. And so you can always give us a shout on our Twitter, which is at Prepaces Podcast. If you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. I've been Dr. Sam Williams. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. <laughs>